gloomy, mostly Euclidean confines of Castle Gormagon, upon the lofty, wind-blasted heights of the Plateau of Lang, I am Confucius the Ecumenical Volgi, and this is Radio Gormagon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 4 of Radio Gormagon. Yes, in fact, we do have a podcast. Yes, in fact, we have three previous seasons. And yes, we are doing a fourth. With me today are the Mandarin, the Czar. Hello. Dr. J. Hello. And Pewter. Where am I? Mandarin, I kind of stepped on you. You want to say hello again? Hello. So uh, today, I think we're going to kick around some ideas for season four. And then we have a selected topic to, to dive into, but uh, first, maybe a quick check-in. How's everyone doing? Well, we're fine so far, I think. We've got uh, one kid in quarantine. I think he'll be fine. I don't think he's really got it, but we'll see. And uh, But the rest of us are doing fine. And uh, Gort, I believe you have the, you said your, your middle uh, daughter board. Uh, <laughs> Maybe have contracted something, a virus, I believe. Yes, yes. Two of three, uh, unfortunately, contracted the COVID, the Ronas. She had all the Ronas. Now, uh, do you get that by mail? or I, I know Dr. J did a really nice podcast on, uh, on how to prevent getting it and how to get it, but uh, I didn't pay attention. I thought it was sexually transmitted. Ew. <laughs> Dude, it's my daughter. Did so you go to protest? I didn't say you will not give it to her. Good God. <laughs> what a way to start season four. <laughs> right in the toilet. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Topic. I'm yeah. thinking that's episode two. That's right. Ways to, ways to get the Ronas that you never thought were possible. Right. So Let's start the, the episode with the, the standard cliche of four months earlier. <laughs> Although I did have somebody today refer to it because of all the fear around it as, as COVIDs. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, because of the way people are treating this, because I'm going to refer to it from now on. I'm like, oh, great. And the way the drug ads are, I mean, HIV is like not even a problem anymore. I mean, Rona is honestly right now much more scary to the public than uh, HIV is. Well, which is in the mean, 80s. Yeah, I mean, the 80s, I mean, it was scary as hell. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting for the... the- even in the late 90s, uh, during my residency, uh, you know, there were some people getting PCP pneumonia, and it was just awful. And a whole bunch of the other sequelae before they had protease inhibitors. It was just terrible stuff. Nobody's going to worry about AIDS again until it get, makes an appearance on Stranger Things. Well, all I know is I'm, I, I'm waiting for just, you know, all we're left with Will Smith and a German Shepherd is all that's left on the planet. We, you know, this coronavirus is spreading, so... Yeah, it's killed everybody. So maybe we should do another episode on the Ronas and the fear. I mean, in this season, I mean, it's, there's, you know, good fear and bad fear. And I'd like to do sort of a look, a look back, a look back on the governmental response on all levels. It's just sort of, you know, our anecdotal, you know, because we all live in different areas. Um, I think actually, no, actually, I think Doc has a Republican governor. I do have a Republican governor. And oddly, Gort has a Republican governor, which is shocking. Does his count? Yeah, that's, that's a discussion we can have at that time. But yes, I think 
I think you two are the only Gormagons that have a uh, have Republican governors, and you you have Doc, the only real Republican governor. Yeah, even then, there are days I wonder. Our governors <laughs> don't do much. Um, they try to do as little as possible, which probably is a good thing. Our governor does too much. <laughs> yes, your governor does do too much. <laughs> My governor blames everybody but himself for killing the old people. He actually changed the counting mechanism, but we can talk about this in that episode. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, just the shenanigans that have gone on in New York are yeah. crazy. And my so, Sunday gravy recipe is much better than his Sunday gravy recipe. I remember I, hearing know, about it on a press conference. That would be an interesting, why do the Italians call it gravy? <clears throat> it's funny It's because my wife will go ballistic if you call it gravy. Is she Italian? She's 100%. Okay. And her parents are off the boat. If you call it gravy, she goes ballistic. Where, where in Italy, though? From the north. Yes. Oh, there that, you go. She's more in the north. She's more German, I think, than anything else. She won't believe it. I told her when she's sleeping one day, I'm going to swab her, but she doesn't know it. I'm going to get her tested. <laughs> I have so many, so many swab questions. I just, we're just going to leave those aside for that episode. So, no, yeah. not that kind of swab. That's <laughs> <laughs> since we're married. That's right. <laughs> So does anybody have other ideas? I mean, I'd like to, I think that doing another one sort of just g- generally COVID and maybe maybe a two-parter where, you know, Doc can, can discuss things that we've learned and treatment and sort of that sort of stuff and how quickly the, the vaccines have developed, which to me is one of the more fascinating medical slash engineering marvels. Oh, it's, it's, it's nothing short of a miracle. And honestly, if anyone other than Trump was president, you know, they would be... Uh, getting a hagiography written about them for this accomplishment. I mean, just them getting out of the way, government out of the way, and letting um, the the research happen and the progress happen without as many hoops to jump through. Um, you know, it was, it was, expect I expected it, but it was remarkable. I mean, and some of it also is the, just the molecular biology technology that we have that allows us to move the needle faster than we did, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago um, with just, the cutting and pasting and developing of the uh, vaccine in of itself. How long did it take us to get the polio vaccine? I mean, it was decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a long time. I saw well, a very, inter- I saw something very interesting, interesting today that when the polio vaccine first came out, it was they had like a point zero eight percent acceptance rate, and Elvis went on TV and got the shot. When six months, eighty percent of the people were taking it. It just the idea of people were so afraid of getting it, but once they saw him do it, I've got a question now. As a first, you know, first line responder, I mean, I assume you're forced to take it in the first wave. Yeah, so um, I haven't gotten my um, appointment yet because uh, they're waiting for official approval. But um, through one of my employers, I already signed up for it. And as a cardiac care unit physician, I think I'm in the first group. Um, so emergency room, medical intensive care, um, inpatient um medicine physicians are all definitely in that first group. And since I'll be in the ICUs and doing consultations on these patients, I'm probably in that group as well. Now you getting the two, two shot vaccination or the single shot? Yeah, we're probably going to get the two shot vaccine. Those are going to, those two are going to come out first. Um, and so, and the Pfizer vaccine because of its refrigeration is going to be one that is, you know, best to give to the frontline medical providers because we have minus 70 refrigerators and freezers um, to keep it cold I already at our institutions. I more shots than you can. 
That's right. <laughs> no, but that that's a good point. I mean, it's like the the one that's the AstraZeneca one, I believe, is the vaccine is is much more traditional vaccine temperature. Yeah. It's like traditional household refri refrigerator freezer temperature. Right. And so is Moderna too. Yeah. Um, so so Moderna is the ones that's going to come out. The AstraZeneca, they have to go back and do another study because they had some issues with one their last trial. So the okay. AZ one's going to be delayed a little bit. Which that, one's the one? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Mandy. I was going to ask, which one's the one that um, alters the RNA or modifies the RNA? So Moderna and uh, Pfizer are both mRNA vaccines. So what they do is they inject messenger RNA, which is basically a recipe for uh, Rona protein. And then so your cells incorporate the mRNA into them and then start manufacturing Rona protein that your immune system then immunizes itself against. So oh, talked about our recipes. Yeah, oh, there's a recipe right there. Yeah. So a Rona protein, uh, tasty Mama and delicious Rona recipe. Yeah. But these new mRNA vaccines, I think are going to be the wave of the future with, um, uh, future diseases. They are using them, uh, in HIV, uh, vaccine development right now too. Um, because it, the, the pro some of the, uh, the, the, the protein vaccines don't always take. And so I think that they need a more durable, uh, sustained amount of, you know, antigen protein in the system for your immune system to develop a response. And the MRNA, um, makes the protein longer than if you injected just purified protein into your arm, that it would hmm. stick around. So uh, how do you, so how do you get around the the fear? Because I mean, you can you can see it now. People are going to be thinking, "Oh my God, they're going to alter my DNA." Because nobody doesn't understand science and anything else in right. the country. I mean, it's hard enough to get these people that are anti-vaxxers now with your standard, you know, measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines and everything else. I can only imagine the, the resistance and the pushback on this. When yeah, this doesn't this doesn't change anything. This oh, is I know just, that. Yeah. No, but the success of well, the Kamala MCU can tell coming. everybody. That's the whole thing is we just uh, need Kamala to set everybody straight because she was the one who doesn't want to get the shot. And it's uh, Kamala, Kamala. That's actually because it's an Indian goddess, I believe. It's Kamala because I'm prejudiced. <laughs> okay, it's Kamala. I'm good with that. I think the popularity of the Marvel Cinematic Universe though has paved the way for people having their RNA altered. <laughs> I think people are pretty open to the idea of superpowers now. Well, if I can lift up a car over my head, then I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah. Well, the boys. I mean, that's a great – I love that one. It's so dark and – Yeah. It, I think that's an, that's another topic is – The boys? Do a re – well, yeah, I've seen do it. a catch-up on various TV mu movie stuff, especially with with – who is it that decided that their films are all going straight – uh, concurrently, theater and streaming. Warner Brothers is doing Warner it. Brothers, yeah. yeah, for 2021 yeah. only, they've said, which is garbage because once you once you once you open that box, you can't close it again. It's Nobody's going yeah, back like, to the theater. Like they're the first to have gone straight to video. <laughs> well, that's where all my movies went, but they were really well. We can't. We don't need to discuss them. They were all made in a valley in California, and it was yeah. Just... There's there's behind the red velvet curtain in the back of the video shop, and then there were yours, which were wrapped <laughs> up in a shower curtain in the alley. And only and only sold by the Russians. So for your safety, <laughs> for your safety. Oh, this pewter guy keeps bringing these things by. We keep throwing them out. We don't want his movies. They're all sticky, and they're ten dollars each. I mean, <laughs> if they were twenty five, I'd agree to take the money. So no, I think you're right. I think that you know stuff we're watching, stuff we're listening to, interesting you know podcasts other than ours because ours is always the best. You know, I listen to it every day when I get up. 
as I go for my set. You've never heard a single one of them. Don't believe me. Does anybody really believe me? Don't believe me. I don't believe you, Peter. I I actually, honest to goodness, truth be told, have never listened to one. We'll put it on parlor so you can from now on. I hate (laughs) my voice. I hate it. I'm weird. I don't like pictures of me. I think I'm part Native American like Elizabeth Warren. Nobody likes pictures of you. We're stealing your soul right now. Peter. Exactly. No, I and mean then, Peter and I have that that's an interesting thing. Peter and I have that in common. I mean, I don't like I don't like pictures of myself either. I do, I, nor do I like uh, hearing my own voice. I do suffer through it before, when I listen to the podcast because the rest of you guys are great. So. Well, I've noticed the- I've noticed I have a face for radio and a voice for print. So. <laughs> <laughs> you're way better than that, Mandy. Honestly, you're way better than Czar, but don't don't let him kick you when you're down. <laughs> I'm doing all the booting here. That's right. You I just think- stab up. <laughs> I think the other doesn't like his voice or his uh, or his face. He's going to be a pretty useless force projection. (laughs) True. I think the other topic uh, that we could tack on to maybe a multi-part coronavirus one is, you know, what the future looks like outside of just the medical field, like what it's doing to commercial real estate, what it's doing to, you know, traditional office environments. What it's what it's doing to housing. I mean, yep. you're, you're looking at it. I don't know what's going to happen, but yep. with, with the rent strikes and the idea, and, you know, nobody wants to put families out on the street, but you got to compensate the landlords. And if you, if you just allow the rent strikes and you don't compensate the landlords, then the banks end up taking the, the property anyway and throwing the people out on the street anyway. So this is a real problem and it's going to have to get addressed and God, God, you know, God bless them. Congress is actually going to have to get their shit together and figure it out and do something for once on this. And it's going to be ugly and it's going to be messy and it's going to cost money and it's going to be not what the Democrats want, not what the Republicans want, which would be to do nothing. But it, it has to be done because otherwise you're looking at a disintegration of society or you're looking at a whole class like there wasn't pre-revolutionary Russia where you had people who were just dirt poor, didn't own anything and just wandering around and looking for trouble at a certain point. And were easily, you know, just from a pure self-preservation standpoint from an American, you know, as an American, it makes sense to figure this out. I'm still dealing with uh, serfs running around, but I've given them plenty of free beheadings. Yeah, well, you know, you're seeing a huge change in demographics, too, because I know, like, by me, we were getting, they can't build the houses fast enough for our man, because all these people are leaving the cities, and I think you're seeing that in San Francisco, L.A. Here. You know, they're getting, they're getting, they really want to get out of the cities, in some places out of the states, but nobody wants to live in downtown Chicago anymore. You know, it's funny because the czar and I are involved tangentially with the construction industry, you know, because of the work we do for design, and you know, you're seeing that everybody ran downtown. All these corporate headquarters went to the loop because they had to be downtown. All the young millennials wanted to work downtown, want to be close to the action. Well, now you've got this whole coronavirus pandemic that's it's sprung up, which is forcing people to work from home. Also, all these millennials, they, they lured downtown because they want to be where the nightlife was, are now getting to the age where they want to get married, they want to have children, they want to raise a family. And guess what? They don't want to do it in the schools in the city or spend $35,000 a year to send their kid to kindergarten. So they're all it's a valid choice. Back. So they're all starting to move back <laughs> out. And I think that's what you're starting to see. You're going to see that whole almost that vacuum in the city, the downtown real estate, but like you said, almost collapse, not just commercial, but I think a lot of residential too. But it's also interesting. Here's just anecdotal. 
So my sister, my youngest sister, and I don't have a nickname for her, so I'm just going to call her my youngest sister. Puterina. She has, she has Puterina. Yeah, she has two kids, and the older of the two kids is probably four. And and my younger sister, and this is I don't I haven't lived near her, and I didn't grow up with her because she's 13 years younger than I am. So, but her kid, her oldest kid, when my mother asked the kid what he wanted for Christmas said a house with a backyard because they live in an apartment in DC like and that's all he wanted and that's that's the inflection point when you've got a whole generation that's grown up and they're growing up through this like my kids are old enough like one's at Oxford one's at UGA where you've got they're dealing with a whole set of problems like a whole different set of problems but they're not growing up when they can't go outside because they're in a city and they're just locked inside all the time and they can't do stuff with their friends and they have to wear masks all the time. And it's, I watched their Christmas concert Friday night and I got to tell you, I laughed harder than I ever have like in the last year and a half probably because the kids were so damn cute. And, but, but it was like, they're all wearing masks after they're two years old, they're all wearing masks. And I'm going, you know, it's, it's gotta have an effect on them going forward. I mean, we, we can do a lot of prognostication. Yeah on this yeah. but it's and that would be another whole two three hour episode a lot of yeah. fear in these kids a lot of instilling a lot of fear a lot of fear well, let's not exhaust this topic no we won't yeah. i mean i could i could i could easily just talk for three hours on that topic but that's yeah. me because i'm drunk and angry yeah i could talk about it as well i mean it's i mean just the the, the, the what's been going on with these kids i mean little residents a senior this year and uh, we, we had a couple friends over for dinner last night. And uh, as you guys saw the bolognese uh, that we made. And uh, one of the things we were talking about is how the little residence class, I mean, they didn't have a normal junior year. They didn't have a normal senior year. We're hoping that when they go to college next year, it's gonna be sufficiently back to normal-ish um, that, you know, that their college experience is gonna be enjoyable. But like, the, you know, the greater two above my daughter and you know the grade behind her you know that group of kids are really feeling it well may we uh may we jump into our topic for today no we still want to make fun of pewter's head <laughs> we'll be here all day. Bean. it looks like it's been boiled so it sounds like doc started a, a bit of a tweet storm around uh, a family recipe of bolognese yeah so here's here's what happened so um, it was one of those rare tweets by Doc where it was actually useful. <laughs> um, well, you know, he's, he's a big copy and paster. If it has anything with like a baby Yoda on it, it's going right onto our feed. And, uh, but today, Grogu. Surprised his name I is a, Grogu. I Say his double... name. <laughs> Don't dead name him. <laughs> I, oh gosh. Oh, and that's the story. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, this and is you way funnier so than well. anything I could have said, so uh, uh, I was surprised. I had to double check to see who who actually put the tweet up there uh, because it was a photograph of a beautifully handwritten recipe. Don't take credit for it, Peter. No, I was just I fully agree. I, it was gorgeous handwriting, and nobody has handwriting like that anymore. Wonderful penmanship, and it was a uh, a recipe. It was the old Sith recipe for. Uh, fettuccine bolognese and 
you know, I, I read it and I thought, well, this looks really easy and really good. I read it to Mrs. The Czar, who immediately perked up and started saying things to me in Italian. I, I don't even remember what they were, but she says, well, that's that's like the marigoup, you know. I don't know what that means, but it was it was a word like that. And um, so she started reading it back to me and agreed that that's about as authentic a recipe as you're going to get. So um, I'd like to say it's available on our website, but it isn't and it won't be. And nobody checks there anymore. So it's on Twitter, which is great because after 4 or 5 p.m. Eastern time today, you're not going to be able to find it. Uh, but it's out there and it's really good. So you want to scroll through our feed and get it. Uh, but as I was reading it, I, I was inspired to, to tweet back that uh, my younger guy has become the keeper of the family recipes. So he has worked with both of his grandmothers. Uh, they're both still with us. So he's been able to work with each of them numerous times in the kitchen. Um, one coming uh, up with all the traditional, uh, you know, uh, his uh, my mother-in-law coming up with all the traditional old world Italian recipes. Um, you know, the, the coveted ravioli recipe and the lasagna recipe is really good. Um, and, uh, you know, on, on my side, it's all these weird East European recipes, the old, old, old 19th century recipes for borscht and pierogi and, and uh, gawumki and things like that that, uh, you know, we, we still make today. And he has deliberately learned uh, from each of the grandmothers through repetitive uh, watching. When they say you add a little of this and add a little of this, he measures it and gets the, the right ingredients. So he has compiled a cookbook that both families are after. And he's a smart enough 15-year-old. For example, he won't give out the ravioli recipe unless someone agrees to provide him with a good or service. Um, good for which him. Is, which is smart because he knows... Uh, the person that holds the family recipes holds the power. And uh, indeed, it does give you a tremendous amount of power when everyone is dependent upon you. Now, on my wife's side, uh, they love to argue. The cousins scream and holler at, at each other, as Italian families do, over whether it's a quarter cup or a half a cup of this, or whether you add that or you don't add that. Is it, does it have onion or not? And they all yell at each other. Well, he, being the official keeper, also responds periodically throughout the year to various family uh, text messages where he's got to settle the argument. And again, that has put him in a tremendous position of power. On my side of the family, uh, the my nieces and nephews are now at the point where they're, they're starting to hit their 30s, so they're starting to recognize the value of family traditions and are starting to ask him for the recipes because they want to start making them with their growing families. And I thought, I don't know that I can come up with a better example of passing on a, a, a tradition than a recipe. And I thought to myself, you know, what, what Dr. J did today is, you know, the little resident or the little med student, if they could keep that recipe and they could learn to make that recipe and maybe even keep that photograph and, and grandma's original handwriting, what a tremendous treasure that is to the family. That's something that they can pass on to their grandkids in another 60 years or so, you know, that, and I thought, wow, what a tremendous thing. How far back do some of these recipes go? Now, Pewter brought up an interesting point. Uh, responding and, and by the way, this lit Twitter up. We had everybody writing in with all their family recipes and all the horror stories of trying to sit grandma down and, and get her to, to explain exactly what a little bit of this and a little bit of that is. Um, one of our followers, uh, Franca Rivera, uh, said that she's been working with her sister to try to get her mom's or their mom's uh, old world recipes. And she says it's very, very painful because it, well, how much of this do you add? Well, you know, you add as much as you like, or you add the right amount. 
And, and you know, I, I, that resonated with me because I know how painful that is as a person trying to collect a recipe. Well, what is the right amount? I mean, I'm, well, as much as you like. Well, what do I like? So I thought this could be a really interesting topic for today. Uh, and, and Dr. J, you started all of it. Um, so why don't you tell us a little about, about, a little bit about the uh, recipe that you photographed and put up today? What, what inspired you to do it? <clears throat> yeah, so, um, you know, so we, we just renovated our kitchen and uh, uh, a couple, some couple friends of ours uh, invited themselves over to see the renovation and uh, have dinner with us. So uh, Mrs. Dr. J and I said, hmm, what do you want to make? And we kind of went back and forth with some different recipes. And we have two three ring binders full of recipes, um, about a third to half of which my mother um, wrote down with her impeccable beaten by a Catholic school handwriting uh, from the 1940s. And uh, so we're flipping through the different recipes. We've made this. We haven't made this in a while. I, I don't think they'd like this. And we came across uh, my mom's bolognese recipe. And my mom's bolognese recipe is different from a lot of other people's bolognese recipes because it's lighter. And so uh, it uses ground pork and sausage as the meat instead of ground beef, ground bison. I've known people to use elk uh, in their bolognese. And then- Very Italian. Yeah. And then it, we use, uh, it uses a combination of uh, white wine and uh, chicken stock um, to cook down, cook everything down. And, uh, so, uh, the missus and I decided, Hey, why don't we just make this and we'll make a double recipe so that we'll freeze some for later in the winter. We could thaw out and, uh, heat up, you know, later. And so, so we, we cooked it up and I took some pictures along the way. Uh, and then I said, out oh, of hell with it. I'm just going to put up the uh, recipe, uh, as well. And, uh, it was a big hit with our, uh, our guests and it wasn't as heavy as, the typical bolognese that people get where they just get let down they need to take a nap afterwards uh but yeah it's my mom's recipe and uh it's basically one of the things i grew up with um hmm. you know she's made a big effort actually to write down a lot of the recipes for us that um were recipes that i enjoyed as a child that um you know her her mother passed down to her i mean some of them we just don't make really because um, my daughter and uh, my wife are not the biggest fish people on the planet. So, you know, Christmas Eve, bacala salad, which is a salted cod uh, salad, which is amazing. And every Italian does it differently. And every Italian will tell you they do it the right way. And everyone else's way is wrong. Um, but, uh, you know, I would love to make that on Christmas Eve. My, my wife was like, it's a cold day in hell before you make that one. Um, but, you know, it's really good. And my, my great aunt, uh, who is my grandfather's baby sister who passed away this past year. And my mother, um, their recipes are very distinctly different because they came from different parts of my, my, my maternal grandmother, my maternal grandfather came from different parts of Italy. Uh, so the, the bacala salad that my aunt Teresa would make is very different than the one my mother would make. Um, it was much more simpler, uh, less ingredients than the one my so, so the, it's funny that these traditions kind of get passed down. And I think what um, your son is doing with collecting all of these recipes is amazing. It's something we've kind of done along the way. Uh, it's kind of a hot mess in a few spiral notebooks. And then we actually, Mrs. Dr. J actually asked the kids a couple of years ago, what meals do you like that, you know, when you think about, you know, meals that we've made and uh, my daughter looked at her and goes, Kraft mac and cheese. And... <laughs> My wife was ready to kill her. 
And then she's well, like, oh yeah, your Salisbury steak's really good too. And so uh, there's some tr some recipes that my mother-in-law have that we've kept as well. I mean, she, she has a very, very good uh, Salisbury steak. And then, um, you know, her chicken parm, um, I like it better than anything that I've had on my side of the family. So we, we, we try to get those recipes and get them written down and passed down. As you, know, well. you said two things, two things there that I want to comment on. Uh, the first, you said that your, your wife and daughter are not particularly fish people. I think that's okay because H.P. Lovecraft warned about that, the shadow over his mouth. You want to avoid the, the fish people. Yeah. Uh, but two, I, thought, people I thought that was just fallout. <laughs> the second thing is you said that uh, it's not a traditional bolognese recipe, but when I read it to my wife, she said she said that that was almost a complete dead ringer for the way her grandmother used to make it. And what's what, what was great for her is they've lost that recipe. They don't have it. So now she thinks she can recreate it based following that recipe. And now that gives her power within her family. When I say traditional, I mean more Americanized, what people think of as a bolognese, not necessarily traditional oh. as in authentic. Okay, because I, I know that the uh, the marshmallow fluff was a bit of a surprise ingredient in there, as, as were the Jolly Ranchers. But uh... and the fish sauce, the fish sauce is what makes it. You can't use make it without Vietnamese fish sauce. Um, Marco Polo brought it back from the Na in the 12th century. From the so. It wasn't the Silk Road. It was the it was the Fish Road, and that's fish a little sauce road, Yes, and that the only way they could get the fish back from the Nam was to actually pack it in salt and yeah. put put it on barrels across the camels and the horses and the mules' backs for 4,000 miles in three months. So, you know, it, it, by the time it got there, it was just a liquid, and that's all they had. And they were like, this was fish, and they just had to use it. So that's, yeah. that's what happened, and that's how Bolognese developed. Well, the problem is, is that that's all Marco Polo talked about for the rest of his life. Is like, That's right, you weren't there, man. <laughs> you didn't see it, man. You don't even know how it was. With the fish... And the Vietnamese just giving us fish because they didn't, they were tired of eating fish. I'll tell you the, the other aspect of this that gets lost is not only measuring ingredients, but is watching the techniques that oh, are done. I forgot you were here. Thank God you got this back on track. <laughs> You're welcome. So uh, my mom makes every Christmas, uh, there's a very traditional set of uh, items that, that they prefer it's it's usually some sort of red meat like a standing rib roast or filet mignon and then uh this spicy spinach dish which i know pewter's had once it caramelized pearl onions stuffed mushrooms and then my mom makes popovers the way my mom makes them they're very light and they're very thin just enough crisp on the outside and you break them open they're all buttery inside and and so it's the dough, the batter for popovers is dumb simple, but it's all about the technique of she has to have the right popover pan and you have to put it into, I think, a cold oven and, and let it come up to temperature as it's baking. And it, there's all this weird stuff. And that's the other part that you need to capture when you get these family recipes is the technique. And some of it's like, you know, Miss, Mrs. P found out this this Thanksgiving, she was making a crust for the apple pie. And there was a picture of it on Twitter. And she found that, you know, she had looked around and seen it because, you know, chemistry major, you know, or not chemistry major, but a chemistry teacher, biology major. Um, she was like, yeah, maybe I'm going to try to freeze the butter and then grate it real quick. 
and it makes a huge difference in the lightness of the crust. So, I mean, it's it's stuff like that that you you need to be there to watch it being done, to understand how it's actually done. And it brings up a good point. You know, my wife right now, after my mother-in-law passed away back in April, but long before that, she was showing her how to make all the traditional dishes, how to make pasta, how to do all these other things, and she would never write anything down. And it was almost the very secretive. She would tell my wife, "Don't tell anybody you know how to make this," because all what they're going to do is come. Christmas, you're going to be begging you for lasagnas and everything else. They want you to make them scratch. She goes, don't tell anybody you know how to do this. He swear she was teaching her how to make like meth or something. And, and, and <laughs> they were hiding the secrets. But, you know, for my wife, it was a very learn by, learn by doing and not by reading. So, again, she can make all these things. But if you asked her, well, write it down, she'd be like, what do you mean write it down? I, I, we just do these things. And in some ways, I, I feel bad in the sense that my mother-in-law made some really wild things that were really, really good. And there's really no knowledge transfer there except the knowledge of how to actually do it. But if somebody else were to try to make it, you couldn't pass that along unless you were there with my wife watching her now doing it and how, how it gets done. Well, and I think somebody on Twitter, and I forget who it was, recommended that, you know, you need to video. And it might have been one of us, but I, I don't pay attention to any of that. So it was, But it was somebody, one of our followers, I think, who said, you really need to video it because you don't – I can picture the person's and I think it's a man's Abby, but you need to, you need to video it because like we're talking about, you can't possibly understand how to do anything uh, without, without seeing it done. You can have the recipe and you can have the directions, you can have the amounts, but there's so much technique involved. It's, it's like working metal. It's like, I can tell you how to work metal. I mean, I can't, but I mean, somebody who could, and it, it, it's not going to translate. You have to watch the artists do it. Yeah, Pewter, I was just uh, just trying to uh, look that up, in fact, because uh, to Gort's point, one of our followers, and I really wish I could give proper citation here, it was fairly early, and I'm, I'm not kidding, there are hundreds of, of tweets that this has generated, um, who said that it will probably take my son another 50 years of experimenting with it to finally understand and realize this is how grandma got it to taste so good, that it is all about the technique. We talk about technique. His dad built a, a walk in the backyard that uh, Gort Sr. had one that, uh, as it was described to me, had could generate so much heat that if you took the walk off, it would generate like a blue column of flame, like an F-35 afterburner. <laughs> now, yeah. now, I know. Did he use Papa, an F-35 Papa, afterburner? I, I, I'm sure he has access to one. I, I know Papa Gort. I've met Papa Gort, and Papa Gort might be the quintessential renaissance man i mean the man knows something about everything and you will find no better engineer anywhere i mean in my opinion one of the first times i met gort and this is you know since we're talking about food and history one of the first times i met gort i came to his house and i don't think i could drive yet i think my mom dropped me off there or something you know and and mom gort was standing in the driveway and you know i went inside and sleepy gort and Gort were inside in their Boy Scout uniforms, I think, because they just come from a from a meeting, looking at an entire Betamax or VC VHS disassembled, like literally disassembled down to the circuit boards on towels across half the house, right? And they were working on putting it back together. And I'm and I'm looking at and I'm going, my mom like as a stay-at-home mom and my dad's a lawyer and I think I just walked into the twilight zone you know it was one of those moments but that's that's Papa Gordon 
Papa yeah. Gort can do anything. I mean, I, I really believe that. I mean, so give him a problem, he'll fix it. Yeah, so as part of his, his renaissance later in life, he started taking Chinese, various Asian cuisine classes. As one and these does. were Yes, and, and his, the primary one was from this Chinese lady who taught it out of her house, and she would have like seven or eight students. And again, it was, she gave them photocopied recipes. And along in the recipes are all these handwritten notes that she does on top of them. And she would go through them. But my dad said, the whole thing is you got to watch her do it. And you got to see the technique that, it, that it's done. And, and so I've watched my dad. I've picked up a few of his Chinese recipes. He's, he makes this one bok choy recipe that, that my wife loves. Um, and it took me... I don't know, five or six tries having the recipe and watching him, it still took me five or six tries to get it just right. Like, did I blend it right? Did I cut the bok choy, which actually he doesn't use bok choy. He uses Napa cabbage, but you know, that's a side issue. Uh, it, he says- And it, you've been it, using the bok choy all along, haven't you? <laughs> the first time I did it, I used bok choy. And my wife goes, this is all like wilty and saggy because- <laughs> Because the Napa cabbage holds up better to the sauce. And when right. you, you just flash fry it real quick in the wok, and, and so it still keeps its crunch, even when you douse it with the sauce. So I'm still you know, that's a to... perfect story. Perfect story. Because if you really need an example of why your father is an engineer, it's that a, a woman was kind enough to show him how her ancestors had been cooking on a wok for 4,500 years. And as an engineer, he says, I think I can improve on that. <laughs> Well, so so he cooks for a number of years, right? He would cook these Chinese dinners for us based on these recipes. And, and, and I, had, I've, been, I've been to one of them, I think, and it was probably one of the earlier ones. Probably. And it was, it was ridiculously good. I mean, yeah. just, Not surprisingly, it was also the last time they had you over. <laughs> well, I mean, I did poop in their plants. So, I mean, I couldn't find the bathroom. And I'd had like five glasses of, you know. And that's why they no longer use the bok choy. <laughs> So, I mean, yeah, the bok choy, the bok choy killed all their plants. At least I'm pretending it's the bok choy, but it wasn't that. But uh, for years he would cook and the whole house would smell. I mean, it would smell like Asian food as, as one would expect, but it also had this layer of essentially sesame oil or peanut oil kind of grease smell in the whole house. And my mom finally had it. She's like, yeah, I'm done with that. Like coating all around the oven and, and everything. So he literally went out and got, you know, the equivalent of an F-35 jet engine. Okay. Turned so it vertical I, and, and it's outside. And so when he cooks Chinese, he would cook out on the deck. So, so but no, we're talking about food and tradition. I mean, basically, and it's like, and I think Czar brought it up earlier. I'm not sure he brought it up here, but it's like my family really doesn't have a food tradition. We don't. Um, my father was adopted by an, wonderful german you know family and uh it's uh the mother was irish and from worcester mass and she taught and his father was a civil servant um worked for the federal government as a lawyer but you know it was it was the women in my grandfather's family who could cook on that side my grandmother on my mother's side worked her whole life just worked she had to drop out of school work to support her family she was a her her father abandoned the family, you know, and it was the whole sort of thing. So we never really had 
a food tradition in my family. My mother is a wonderful woman, but she had four kids and just, you know, it was tough. I mean, we're all like within a few years of each other and it was, it, it was tough. So we didn't really have a food tradition. There was nothing I looked back on with fondness other than Thanksgiving when we had sauerkraut, which is weird. And it's either a German or a Baltimore tradition. I, I'm not still not sure which that is, but we have an old family recipe from a grandmother named Holtzman. So it's kind of, so I have that recipe and my mother would make chicken livers, which I loved and nobody else did. So I would eat them with her. So I have that recipe, but that, those are the only two recipes I have in my family. That was it. I oh, mean, it was sort of, I, I just ate them right out of the, you know, frozen. I would just like, like a popsicle. I would just have the chicken livers. Right frozen. out of the bird, right out of the carcass. <laughs> well, if you kill it, you get the best parts, right? I would chase it around the yard and, you know, stomp on it until it died and then eat the livers right out of it. But no, but it's sort of, my wife's family has a much richer food, food tradition. My mother-in-law is French Canadian. And they have Réveillon every year at Christmas time, which is sort of like the Feast of the Seven Fishes, but French Canadian or, you know, so they do pork pie. And literally it's a meat pie. It's basically veal, pork, beef, and saltines, saltines and salt and some poultry seasoning of all things. They throw poultry seasoning in this. I'm like, there's not an ounce of any sort of bird in this in a pie crust and you bake it and they serve it with ketchup and pickles, but it's a tradition. I mean, it's sort of like, you have to do this every year or they get upset. So this is like 20% sodium. Yeah, exactly. And the poultry seasoning would go good with the um, veal and pork. With the veal and pork, but the, you know, the beef is kind of like it's, but, but it's, it's ridiculously good. You can only eat a slice. That's about two inches at the, at the, at the, I'm going to get this wrong. Cause I don't do math, but it's like the arc end of it you know, before it goes into the center of the circle. Um, that's it. And if you eat more than that, you're probably going to die. Um, but it's so good. And it's it, it, these food traditions. So Mrs. P and I decided that we were going to start doing a tradition. You know, we looked it up and we said, oh, they do bouche de Noels, which is a Yule log, basically. And it's a pastry dish. So we've been doing that for years. And she figured out how to do it. And it's extremely complicated. And I'm no baker, but I help. Um, you know, that's that's a food tradition that I love. And I, you know... Since we don't have food traditions, and and Czar said this today, I you know I was kind of like okay, I'm sort of out of this discussion because I don't have anything to talk about. I don't have grandparents that made stuff. I don't have you know, but I've apparently and Czar saw this and I did not have created stuff, and I have, and it's sort of like I've learned how to cook not out of spite or anything. I just kind of like because I enjoy it and I love doing it, and I figured out how to do stuff that I like and that my family likes, and it's kind of like it's just it's cool and i've written a lot of it down and my kids have actually asked for some of the recipes which is nice so it's it's you know it's nice that we have technology now where you can write it down and share it across mediums and i've given other people recipes for stuff too like my mac and cheese is legend so i mean i'm doc doc's probably going all right bring it but (laughs) you know by all means bring it because for sure because i mean our our mac and cheese is generally craft now, Mrs. Dr. J's sister um, makes an amazing uh, mac and cheese, and she shared the recipe with Mrs. Dr. J. Um, I, I don't like mac and cheese. I'm, I'm a kind of an anomaly there, but um, it looks good from a the craftsmanship that's involved in it. Southern cuisine cool. fascinates me. And I, I Honestly, it's one of those cuisines that's – there is no Ameri- American – originated cuisine that is not does not owe something to black people there's none 
like that's native, like native in our, not native American, American Indian, because that's a whole different thing. And they are American and, you know, we owe them great respect. I'm not trying to knock that, but we do have, you can't have American cuisine without acknowledging the black influence on all of it, because so much of what we think of as American cuisine from the South, it's like, this is my family recipe. And it's like, no, it's not. It's your, it's your housekeeper's recipe. It's your cook's recipe. It's this stuff from the South. And it's all, you know, if you look at it, collard greens, people weren't going to eat collard greens. That was not something that European settlers ate. You know, you look at yams, you know, yams and sweet potatoes. That's not something that Europeans ate. All this stuff that forms the basis of the Southern cooking, you know, beans, you know, the European, the, the English did not eat beans, you know, not in that sense. I mean, they, you know, the legumes, they did not. Peanuts, all that stuff. I mean, all that stuff, rice, unknown to the English. I mean, all that stuff that makes great Southern American cooking. You know, you have these great white chefs that come out and say, oh yeah, you know, we've got all this tradition. I'm going, it's not your tradition. <laughs> it's like you're piggybacking on everybody else who knows how to do it better because it's their family tradition. And that's part of the family tradition discussion. And you know, I just interesting. leave it at that. It's interesting about tradition too. You know, we talk about these recipes, but we don't eat the same way that our ancestors did. I mean, I just know if you look at like my like I said, my wife's Italian, Doc's, you know, relatives are Italian. If you were to go to Italy right now, they do not eat the same way we do. It may be the same styles of dishes, but everything here is pretty much Americanized. Not only in the ingredients, you know, we we're talking about, and even the preparation, the way it's prepared, but the way it's served. You know, you eat totally differently in these in these European countries. Just the way the meals are brought out. I'll never forget the first time I went to my mother-in-law's house. You know, first thing they came out, well, here's the pasta course. Okay, I thought that's all we were having. Next thing you know, here comes you know, here comes the meat course, and then here comes this course, then here comes the everything is is almost staged in a, in a totally different way as opposed to what you, you're used to here in this country. You go to a restaurant, they bring out your soup and salad, then they bring out the entree, then you know you get dessert. It's just totally different. I think some of that is lost in the translation, not just in the way the recipes are are made. Because again, to your point, you're right. There's a lot of things here in this country that are different as far as the ingredients. And a lot of those recipes are adapted or, or they're modified to taking those ingredients. And so it changes a little bit. And you even look at some of the foods that we eat now, like some of the things that, you know, Zara was talking about, some of these dishes. Those were really only holiday foods because, you know, 100 years ago, you were, you know, people were subsistence living. You didn't eat that kind of that way all the time. So maybe it was only that certain holiday you ate those certain rich foods. But now you're here in America, people are eating that all the time. Then we wonder why we've got cardiovascular disease and everything else because we're eating all this rich, super rich food. So it's really fascinating from a sociological perspective how things have changed. And once you get here and you live in the land of prosperity, that everybody eats those holiday foods almost all the time. Whereas you know, 100 years ago, that was a once, once a year kind of um, dish. So it's, it's interesting how it, it morphs and how it, and yeah, there's time side involved. of it. Because you brought up a good point. One of the reasons that we reserve some of our family meals for the holidays is because it takes my mom eight to ten hours to make a single dish. Correct. I mean, there's pots boiling on the stove all day long. And the holidays provide her a little bit more time to do it. But, um, you know, you, you a working person today couldn't eat that way every day or every other day. No, but like you said, we, we've because we're Americans, we're ingenious, right? You can go to the store, you can get, you know, pierogi, you can get other things that are that you think as ethnic dishes that, again, you'd probably take hours to make, even ravioli. I mean, 
I'm not talking about Rican, but you can get a pretty good quality frozen ravioli in some of your better Italian stores because you're right. Nobody has the time to sit there and lay the pasta out, you know, roll it out, cut it out, lay it on a sheet, fill the, fill the ravioli, you know, let them dry and all these other things. Again, it's a whole operation. I mean, even in, in the, um, in the fall, my, my wife, her sister, her sister-in-law, the cousins, they got together and in you know, memory of my mother-in-law, they decided to keep the tradition up. They made sauce. So they get the, you know, six to seven bushels of tomatoes. They got the specialized machine that basically separates everything out. It separates the skins and the seeds from the actual, you know, sauce itself. They got the whole canning operation going on. And again, it's a two-day operation. That's just the canning, not the three days before that, cleaning everything out, sorting them all out. It's a huge process that we, you know, a lot of people take for granted. They go down the, you know, the local grocery store, pick up a bottle of, you know, Bertoli sauce, you know, open it up and put it in a jar and go. You know, this it's is a whole process. Three days to make zuroni by hand. I know. <laughs> she's a no, doofy. But, but, it's, but, it's a valid point. I mean, the only reason we can do that many of us can do our jobs is because we have the technology that allows us to skip the labor of food collection and preparation. I mean, we're all standing on the shoulders of this giant pyramid that really starts and ends with two things, in my mind, two things, food and clean water. Those two things, if you don't have those two things, you're screwed. You're done. But it's, it's one of those things is without the food and the fresh water, you don't, you don't have civilization. And without sharing food and traditions, with other people and bringing people into your into your space to share that with them so they understand you better because they have your food and then they start asking questions about how did this come about where are you from why is this this way how come you know and it's 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 not only an icebreaker it's it's a pact maker in my opinion but you know people used to eat together we used to always have dinner together in fact you know we still even schedules and everything we make it a point to try to always have dinner together Mm-hmm. Eat, to eat together and you know i i see it a lot of other families we know around the area the kids are involved in all kinds of sports and all their activities and nobody's eating together you know have time eating out of a fast food you know establishment or whatever it is and you can almost kind of see the disintegration of the, of the, of the family in some respects because of that because nobody has that that at least half hour 45 minutes to even just sit down how was your day as, as a collective unit at the table so at least with the holidays it's it's almost a little more special that it's not just so much for getting together to eat, but if we're doing the preparation together, if we're all working together to figure out how to make these dishes, spending all day making, you know, lasagna or making whatever it is going to be, at least you do it as a family and there's that, that bonding that goes on. And like I said, I, I really feel bad for a lot of these you know, families that just don't get together and cook anymore. Now, let me glue together a point that Mandarin said to uh, a a great point that Pewter had made um, by saying, what, what do you think it's going to be like say in 60, 65 years? And I'm thinking that some of the food preparation techniques and how we assemble the ingredients and including what some of the ingredients are going to contain are going to be very Soil and green. Soil and green. But I bet we're going to recognize what the meal is, especially when we eat it. You know, when it's the grandkids that take over making of the foods, you're still going to know what these meals are and why you're eating them. True. But I, I do think that the modern food culture will be, heavily influenced by plant-based, honestly. And, and that's probably for the best on any number of levels, whether you're talking about, and I'm no climate change like fanatic, you know, I'm not one of those folks, 
but it, it is better for the environment. You know, beef takes a lot more space to raise. Um, and so many cultures that are growing so rapidly in population and they're spreading out all over the world, the Indians, the Chinese, you know, a lot of this, these Asian cultures are more or less plant-based for the most part. They use meat as a flavoring, not as a mating, main ingredient. It's not like they don't sit down and have, it's certainly not in India, but you don't sit down and have a steak. You know, it's, it's, well, it's, 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 it's different there too, though. You've, you've got, you're talking about cultures, it's got, you know, a billion people as opposed to the United States with two, 300 million and a lot more room that they had that cattle grazing area. But again, I like you're saying, I, we're watching, you're watching meat skyrocket. It's going to start to be overregulated because these environmentalists are going to want to push that, you know, plant-based diet, whatever it's going to be. But I think the great thing is, you know, for better or for worse, I think we're losing a lot of our traditions from food because we are such a, a eclectic civil a culture, because you've got so many different things coming in. You know, how many years, like, you know, you took your son for spicy squid, Dr. J. Yeah. You know, we were kids. I mean, spicy squid. I mean, if unless that was at McDonald's and a chicken, you know, McNugget box, you weren't getting that kind of thing. Who even knew there was a Korean restaurant in town? Now there's probably four or five, you know, within a, a two mile, a 10 mile radius of your home. Yeah. Things are getting, are changing wildly and you're seeing a lot more variety and people are being exposed to more. And I, for, but for better or for worse, you know, you may not have that tradition, you know, of, having a certain dish i mean i, I came back to this the movie the christmas story mm-hmm. when the turkey's ruined they have they have you know chinese turkey and the guy they go to a restaurant a guy chops the head off the, off the duck the peking duck but you, you kind of see that you know our traditions change i think it's not so much the recipes although i think it's great to preserve them i think the real heart of the matter is like you said food plays an important part of our lives not just for sustenance but for bringing us together and I think that's the important thing, whether you're cooking a, a traditional recipe of your bolognese sauce or you're trying to figure out some new Chinese recipe and whether it's napa cabbage or bok choy, as, you, as you're doing with it as a family, you're, you're coming together. And that's, I think, what's really important here because I think, I hate to say it, you, you don't, too many people don't care anymore. And I, and I think that's what really bothers me the most is that people look at almost look at us that fact that we're having dinners with our families and we're doing these things that almost like we're the odd oddballs. Why aren't you just going out to, you know, picking something up at the fast food place or just going out to eat. I mean, there's places for that, obviously at times to do that, but people have almost become too reliant on that. I think they've lost a part of themselves by not spending that time together. Yeah. I, that's one of the things I look forward to the most when uh, my mom comes down from Philly <clears throat> is that, you know, she'll cook. And uh, my wife will cook with her and uh, I'll cook with her. And um, meatballs is one of those things that my mom has down and my mom has cold. And the first time my wife tried to make them, she tried to make them when my mom wasn't here. And um, the, 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 the bread wasn't, the bread that's in the meatballs wasn't chopped up as fine as it is when my mom makes it. And so there were these little lumps of bread in the meatballs and my, my wife was very upset. And I looked at her and I said, listen, that's how my grandmother made them. Like my grandmother didn't have, you know, Cuisinart to chop the bread up super fine. And so the meatballs that my wife made, I told her, I said, they remind me of my grandmother's. And she thought I was blowing smoke and I was not blowing smoke. And, um, you know, not only were they were delicious, but they were also, there's like that sentimentality of remembering my grandmother's meatballs. And then, um, you know, next time my mom came down, my wife's like, how do I get these lumps out? How do I, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, did you, you, know, did you want, which, 
no, 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 I'm not knocking your mom's meatballs, but I heard you say something that was very interesting and important to me is that your, your wife's meatballs, which she thought were not quote correct meatballs because they weren't like your mother's meatballs reminded you of your grandmother's meatballs, <laughs> which were one, probably more authentic and two, probably carried a whole lot of more and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, emotional and attachment weight to your history. For me, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But she didn't believe me. Well, she but, thought I was making you, it up. Well, she's she's not Italian, right? So it's no, she's not a gun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's, she's not one of one of the people. So it's it's you know, but that sort of food it it's it connects you to your culture and to your tradition. And in America, we have we're fortunate, thank God, knock wood, that we have a whole ton of people from all over the universe, practically living here with all kinds of different food cultures that many people are fortunate enough to experience. And that's why I get very upset when people are like, oh, well, you think, you know, you think that um, Olive Garden is authentic Italian food. And I'm like, hey, look, you know, if you live in the middle of nowhere and Olive Garden is your only experience of Italian food, God bless you for trying it, you know, because that's your version of Italian food, you know, and it might be Americanized and it might not be quote authentic Italian food. But that's one of the beautiful things about America is that we take all these things and somehow we keep our cultures, but we it all becomes sort of vaguely American. Because like in Chicago or D.C. or Nashville, probably to slightly lesser extent, but probably growing rapidly, you know, you can go get Korean food. You can go get, you know, all any any nationality you want, Ethiopian, Somalian. I mean, you can you – know, Afghani, you can get Chinese. Mongolian, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I Mongolian. mean, any – We went to Curtis Place in town. Yeah, it's, well, perfect. I mean, it's like that sort of thing. I mean, and that's the beauty is it connects your family to its history. And the, the skipping the generation thing that, that Doc mentioned, I think is fascinating. So that's just my opinion. Yeah, and I don't think, I, I, don't, I don't worry about us losing it as a, uh, as a human race or even as Americans, because I just think that, A, uh, you know, to go back and read our, our blog, because we talk about this frequently, but I think, generations are cyclical and i think there's going to be this boomerang effect where i don't know our kids or our kids kids are going to want to go back to the more traditional kind of food and right it some of the artificial stuff and some of the you know there's i think there's this trend in restaurants right now where they're just trying to outdo in a not in a gross you out kind of way but just how over the top can we get with i don't know cow brains or like they're starting to use exotic parts of the animal and they're right. And they're just trying to do this weird stuff. And, and I call it weird and maybe other people don't think it's as weird, but you're going to, I think you're going to see a boomerang back to where people are like, I kind of want what I grew up with. And it's, I think it's people, and I think there's more than we know people that have these traditions that we're talking about that have that food connection. Food is so transcendent in almost any culture, I mean, go look at it, um, that it connects, like the Mandarin saying, it connects people in such a way culturally um, that I don't think it's going away. I think, I think, I don't know, the modern modernists, maybe is the right way to put it, will try to do everything they can to, you know, take it in all sorts of different directions. But I think it's too strong of a, of a force. I'll tell you what, though, Court, when you think about it, you know, you're talking about these, everybody's serving these exotic things on other parts of the animal. 
But we've become very spoiled in the sense that, well, I don't have to eat the liver. I don't have to eat the tongue. I, I'm gonna have the, I'll have the filet because we've oh, yeah. become so prosperous and everything else. But if you go back 100 years, people are lucky to get the eyeballs or the tongue or, or the cheek meat or whatever it was. because or the head. Or the, or head, the head. head cheese, whatever. Th- those were things because things were so bad that they were, they'd take the scraps. I mean if, if you look at Italian beef that people rave about now, we, we, that was a poor cut of meat. That they were able to get from the stockyards to take home with them because nobody wanted it. And they had enough common sense how to cook it, boil it down, season it the right way. And now Portillo's makes it is a billion dollar business because people want a beef sandwich. I mean, they were literally picking up floor scraps. I mean, because that's what they did. Exactly. Right? Off the sawdust that, well, yeah. that, that the blood fell into. But they yeah. rinse. I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying, like in the in the slaughterhouses back in the day, it was just sawdust. I mean, they yeah. threw sawdust on the yeah. floor to catch the blood and all the scraps, and that's basically where Italian beef came from because they were immigrants and they said, got to eat, got to get my kids to eat, right? Yeah, but the stuff that was awful before now, I, you know, I, I opened, you know, Charlie Charles is dead, but now I can serve some tumor on a plate and charge you $3,000 <laughs> for, you know, because, oh, well, Charlie Trotter made it. It's an, it's an exotic thing, but it's like, it's, it's funny how people, like I said, it comes full circle and what was once peasant food and the scraps, now some guy's selling for $80 a plate. It, it's, it's because people... Yeah not realize that 100 years ago people ate this because that's all they had now because we're so spoiled and only eat the higher quality cuts that this is exotic to us and people are going to pay extra to get it, it it's just it's just fascinating how they come so around I, so i had a question for you guys that kind of ties into this is there a food or a dish that when you joined your spouse's family that you ate and you were i don't know dreading it because it wasn't your favorite food, or you weren't sure about it, or I, for, for me, it was veal. I, I'd had veal, you know, once or twice as a kid. I never cared for it, and then I went to dinner at my soon-to-be in-laws, and they put veal on the table. I'm like, oh, I don't really want to eat this, but you know, like you said, you you, you suck it up because you want to be hospitable. And I'll tell you, it was a, it was it is melted in your mouth it was it was phenomenal and because you find out how she exactly she cooked it what she did with how she you know they got the pretender and it was one of those things where yeah it's great and you know i've had it she hasn't made it a lot obviously in the, you know she passed away but she hadn't made it for a while but we went to a restaurant one time and i had had it and it was like yeah it's not the same it's just not the same i would i would never get it again i mean when she made it it was fantastic but anywhere else i just didn't care for it well well czar czar what was the food I mean, there must have been something, no? I mean, or do you, or just because you're Russian, do you eat everything? I pretty much eat everything. I'm, I've been racking my brain trying to think if there's anything that I didn't eat before um, I got married. Uh, I know there's a number of things I introduced her to. Uh, she hated asparagus because they always ate it slimy out of a can. So I introduced, I know, I know, <laughs> I introduced it uh, to her right off the grill. Loves it. Can't get enough of it. Um she hardly ever ate any kind of fish because it was always overcooked. Uh, and I showed her what properly cooked fish tastes like. So she loves it now. But for myself, I don't think there's anything. And gosh, uh, I, I mean, Manor could probably attest to this. I, I don't think there's anything anybody's ever put on a plate that I haven't eaten. He is a billy goat. I have one. I actually have one. And this is, this is interesting. I hated apples. Hated them. Like literally, they're my impression yeah, the from growing up. In a bowl, laughing at you, and oh yeah, why would no, you eat apples? Exactly Especially. right. So, but it was one of the comments they make. Exactly no, but it was it was one of those things. It's like growing up in D.C., we had crap 
grocery stores for decades. I mean, having moved to Rochester and, you know, having been in St. Louis, even like in the nineties, they had much better grocery stores, much fresher produce, much fresher, everything. But moving up here to upstate New York and being able to get apples that are fresh. Right. I mean, it, it changed my world. It's, it's kind of like, Oh my God, I would eat apples all the time if they tasted like this. I, Cause all we ever got was red delicious and green delicious, right? Or yellow delicious. Is that the, is that, I forget yellow delicious, but that was, they were crap. They were giant and they looked really pretty and the skins were tough as like leather and the inside was always mealy. And I was like, why would I ever eat this thing? Yeah. That's how they laugh at you. But that, that would be the one thing having moved up here that I would say that everybody ate. And I was like, no, I don't like that. You know? And, but cause I would eat, I'll eat head cheese. I'll eat tongue. I'll eat. I mean, I eat heart. I've had, I've had heart. I've had kidney. I've had liver. I mean, chicken I eat liver. haggis. Yeah. My chicken liver recipe is epic. So we're going to have to put together a cookbook. But anyway, it's we one of those requests on Twitter to do just that. Well, we probably should. I mean, honestly, it's going to be interesting. So anyway, yeah, that was, that was the, my one thing. Yeah. Mealy apples are the worst, but don't you agree? I mean, we grew up oh. in the same place. I mean, the apples were, ass when we were growing I up. I would so my mom would always put one in my lunchbox uh for for school and I was hoping that it was one of the fresh ones that she got like the night before cuz otherwise like if they set out for a day cuz apples give off that gas that ripens everything. Ethylene, fast. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Ethylene. Yeah. Uh doc, how about you? Is there a <clears throat> is there a food that you dreaded eating from your wife's side? No, no, there, there wasn't actually. I mean, uh, my wife's family is Irish, um, Irish American. And so um, many of the things that they enjoyed eating are just traditional American foods, chicken cutlets, steaks. Um, there, they do have a Thanksgiving tradition <clears throat> where um, my mother-in-law, her father loved creamed pearl onions and Everyone else in the family dreaded the, the creamed pearl onions. And the last time, and the first time that I shared Thanksgiving dinner with them, there were the creamed pearl onions on the table. And my mother-in-law made them at that point ceremonially in memory of her father, but no one would touch them. And so I was like, oh, creamed pearl onions. My, my, my Irish grandmother made these. I'm having some, you know, and... Um, you know, they were quite good. Everyone else looked at me completely horrified that I ate them. But um, but no, I mean, they don't have any recipes that I ever dreaded. All of their recipes were um, fantastic. Man. I mean, I don't like mac and cheese as a rule. So my sister-in-law's mac and cheese, I wouldn't eat, not because it was my sister-in-law's or anything, but just because I just don't do mac and cheese. But the cream pearled onions was one where everyone else hated it but me. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't have, I'm kind of like a handful of you guys. I, my in-laws pretty straightforward food, German, Irish background, but general Americana kind of food. And I wasn't scared about it. Although I heard horror stories about various things like surprise, there's cheese in my meatloaf and things like that. So, uh, but I never got served it. Uh, the one weird tradition is that they have a fruit cup as the opening course for Thanksgiving and what? Christmas. And I'm not a big fruit guy. I mean, I I've eat seen that done. I don't know. Yeah. I've seen it done by people, but so it's, I'm it's like cottage cheese. <laughs> it's like, hey, you can still get it at the club, right? Because the, all the old people haven't died yet. 
So you got to still have the cottage cheese on the menu. Otherwise, the old people get crazy. So you put in a half a cantaloupe. No. Oh, that was my grandmother. Is the nasty. I hate melon. I hate it. Hate it with a fiery passion. My wife wraps prosciutto around cantaloupe and eats it. See, now that's very Italian. And I'll grant that. That blows my mind. That blows my mind. I hate melon. I, I respect people who love melon. I, I That's one of those tastes that I – and I eat lots of things. It's it, weird because your head's shaped like one. You think you like it more. You would think. <laughs> you know, it's it, it actually is sort of like – actually, it's weirdly sort of six-sided and hexagonal. Melon-esque. Mandarin would like macadamias. <laughs> the exactly. worst you get to was, pick them off. It's, the worst is the honeydew melons. Like I can't – I can – if you if I had to be at a dinner where they were serving cantaloupe, I'd eat it. Because I can, I can get it down, but I cannot eat honeydew. Like See, I'd, I rather, will... I'd rather have that than watermelon. I can't stand watermelon. Oh, uh, it's okay. No, watermelon is bad. It's, it's just bad. affirmatively bad. I don't know I, why anybody I'm likes it. It's no, just terrible. terrible. Now the rinds, I think you can do. You can pickle the rinds. So I mean, I think that that would be interesting. I'd like okay. to try that, but it's not the the melon itself. I'm like, it tastes okay. gross. So I'm going to throw this out there. Pickled watermelon, right? You just throw it away or what? No, you eat it. It's good. Trust me. I don't know. I've never had one, but I'm going to try that. So I think we've exhausted this topic, but I'm I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted too, but no, this was really fun. And I actually enjoy, we, we, and seriously, Gort can edit all this out, but it's kind of like, I do think we should consider putting together at least for us, at least for our families like a cookbook of other stuff, the stuff that other people make. Cause I make white trash stuff exceptionally well. You know, it's like, I do basic stuff very well, but I don't have a whole lot of. I made chili last night. I'll get it up. Oh, I've got, chi- I've got an interesting chili recipe too. I should put that up, but I, it's like. Was... Zars had my chili. He says it's okay. It is excellent chili. <laughs> excellent. And he won't tell the truth here, but Mandarin has actually had chili parties at his house where he'll make five different kinds from, uh, you know, like a fire firehouse chili to a, 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 sky, a skyline chili to maybe a more uh, uh, heavier like steak chili. Like and an authentic chili, like a more Cincinnati authentic, chili. Quote authentic I've chili. Even, I've even made it where you do it over rice. I had it in Hawaii. That was fantastic. We do. We it's weird, but we have chili. I, I never had it before, but we have chili over rice up here. Yeah, like I had my, it, I had it in Hawaii probably back in '83 when we were there as a kid, kid, and it was. From then on forward, I love it once in a while. It's just something about it. It's really good. It, it's it's you, almost like a curry. Do you traditionally not have it over anything? It depends. Like last night, we, we had it over elbow macaroni, just because it was like a chili mac. But normally, I'll just have it plain. Mm-hmm. The only different thing we'll have it with Fritos. Well, that's yeah, the the Frito pie, right? The only different thing that, that Mandarin does is he doesn't use bowls. You actually have to cup your hands together, and he pours a ladle full of the scalding chili right in. Yeah, very liquidy. Builds character. Now, it's like mercury. It's like so superheated steel or mercury. Yeah, is this Cincinnati was part of style and, and Skyline the same? Isn't that yeah. kind of sweet, red? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that the same thing, yeah. Cincinnati and Skyline? I, they're similar. I don't think they're yeah. exactly the same, but it's a Cincinnati-style sure, yeah, chili. I'm sure I'll get email from somebody that there's a technical difference. Yeah. It was on our, 70, our 30 Twitter feed today. The 80, Cincinnati chili or Skyline chili. Skyline yeah, is the name of the diner, I think, or the, the restaurant yeah. that That's popularized it. 
I, I don't we, like you know, so beans. I put beans in my chili, and we've had this fight, and this was a current fight on chili. On chili, always on lose Twitter. a fight with beans. No, well, me, yeah. Well, I mean, they just blow out. But speaking of butts, but it it's one of those things where I, it's I don't know. I forget. What yeah, I, I, I got. This. I've got to have the beans. My son hates the beans. Yeah, but you got to have the beans, right? You got to rinse them. Other, you got to rinse. Otherwise, it, otherwise it's manwich. Yeah. It, Thank you. Thank you. But no green peppers. No, no green peppers. Just onions and tomatoes. Yeah. Our recipe calls for three cans of beans and you blend one of them. Ooh. It'll thicken it up. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mash them. I actually hand mash them. I strain them and then I start hand mash them and throw them in there because then you get, you know, you're not. You're not blending anything. You're just getting the skins and everything, but it releases the starches inside, thickens the chili. And yeah, use, which of the three cans do you blend, or is it like roulette? It's a surprise. It never it, knows and, until it hits it. Or So I generally buy two cans. Well, I buy three cans of some variety of kidney and pinto. And no then kidney. no, it works. No, Goya, small, the Goya pink beans are the best beans for chili. Try, try, get a can. I think I use those. Try them. They're, they're the best for chili because they're thinner skinned than the kidneys. Yeah. And they have the same starch content relatively. And they're brilliant. And you got to make, instead of water in your chili to keep it as you, as you simmer it over two days, as chili ought be. Vodka. Beer. Use a, you use a lager, a, a neutral American lager. I use twelve of ounces of beer in my old style. Oh my god! I, I put I, put, I do I do too. I use beer in mine as well. I put, and dill like pickled juice six pack. Dill Man pickled juice. His beans. I what? chop up. I chop up. There's about a half a cup of chopped dill pickles, and then somewhere between a quarter and a half cup of dill pickled juice in or brine. It's probably yeah. a more accurate term. But no, but it's not brine because it's dill pickled juice. So it's that stuff. So yes. it's all the spices that are in there. So you could claim that it's the pickling brine. Yeah. So, but it's interesting. Does yeah. it? Does it? Do you? Do you find it makes a difference? Uh, yeah. It it tartens, tarts, tarts it up. Yeah. Just like the way you go out on the night, you tart yourself <laughs> up. <laughs> well, uh, you put my nipple rouge on usually before I go out. Well, on that note, <laughs> I got to go because I swear I got to go cook. <laughs> No, I, I I literally do have to go cook because we're doing yeah. four pork tenderloins tonight, and I've got to roast. We're doing only roast stuff, and we've only got two ovens, so it's I, I know first first world white person problem, but it's like oh, doing roast potatoes, roast roast red potatoes with rosemary. We're doing what else? We're we doing. I just prepped all this stuff, and I can't remember what I was doing. See, I feel bad because we're actually going over Chinese carryouts tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about cooking. No, so we're, we're we're doing that. We're doing. I do a quick recipe with red potatoes, where yeah. I'll I'll cut them into little wedges. Yeah. Put them in a bag with a dash of olive oil and Lipton onion soup mix, and then roast them. Get get the Wegman's basting oil. Oh yeah. Trust me, Wegman's basting oil is brilliant on that. So, but that's what Donna does. But I've, we're going to do roast red potatoes with rosemary. We are doing butternut squash from the farmer's market, which we still have because they keep well with shallots. And then we're doing, oh, carrots and parsnips roasted. Yum. I should I love parsnips. My parsnips roasted. are brilliant. I like parsnips. Albino carrots. Yeah. They, except they're 
they're like Scottish carrots because they're angry and weird. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're like they're the great. carrots, more easygoing brother. No, they're like they're like the carrots. I will cut a bitch, brother. That's... Oh, you're cooking them wrong. You got to use the Goya ones. They're pink. <laughs> Thinner skinned. <laughs> uh, a couple of people on this car are a little thin skinned, but that's beside the point. <laughs> No, no. I mean, <laughs> nobody on this call is thin-skinned. It's, it's... So anyway, I think we've done more than enough for tonight. Yes. But we definitely, and because I can tell this, because the eclipse is starting to happen on this side of my head, which is away from the window. So, yes. Cool. Well, well, thank you, gentlemen. We'll, we'll wrap up. Yeah. Good talking. No, thanks. And it's good to see all of you guys. And I'm glad you're, you and your families are doing well. Yeah. Absolutely. I talk about you guys all the time. And of course, my family is sick of hearing about you. But <laughs> I do too. And everybody's like, "Who are you talking about?" <clears throat> except for except for Gort. I mean, say, but you know, they're like, "Who are you talking about?" And I was like, uh, "Never mind. You don't know." Right. So anyway, good night, y'all, and I hope you have a good time and uh, happy cooking. Good night, See y'all. See ya. Bye. Reverse drunk Charlie Brown that is all bloated in the screen. (laughs) 